exploring the two solitudes of Saskatchewan. I grew up in what my dad would call the, the fringe, the forest fringe. This is very much an edge environment. And, and it is, uh, an ecotone is very simply where two ecosystems meet. Conversation with Merle Massey about her new book on the history of the forest prairie edge in Saskatchewan. I'm Sean Courage, and you're listening to episode 48 of Nature's Past, a podcast of the Network in Canadian History and Environment. When you think about Saskatchewan, what do you see? Arguably, the predominant landscape Canadians generally associate with the province is one filled with waving grains of wheat on broad, flat vistas. It's the land of the living skies and one of Canada's so-called prairie provinces. And yet, so much of Saskatchewan isn't prairie. In fact, the prairie ecological zone covers only the southernmost part of the province. What about the rest? Merle Massey confronts this matter in her award-winning book, Forest Prairie Edge, Place History in Saskatchewan. It's a book that takes readers through a different landscape in the province of Saskatchewan and invites us to think about the province's history from a new perspective, a view from the edge. That is to say, Massey shifts her focus in Saskatchewan history away from the predominant narratives about the prairies and agricultural settlement based on the cultivation of wheat toward the province's ecotone, the transitional zone between the prairie and the parkland, the forest edge. It's at the forest edge that Massey finds different ways of thinking about sustainability, European and Euro-Canadian colonization of the West, and other relationships between people and the rest of nature. To learn more, I spoke with Merle about this fascinating new book. My name is Merle Massey. I'm an adjunct professor in the School of Environment and Sustainability at the University of Saskatchewan and a research officer with the Centre for the Study of Cooperatives at the University of Saskatchewan. Thanks for joining us, Merle. I'm looking forward to speaking with you today about your book, Forest Prairie Edge, Place History in Saskatchewan with University of Manitoba Press. The first question I have to ask, is the Prince Albert region in northern Saskatchewan or southern Saskatchewan? <laughs> That's a fantastic first question, and of course it is a, a, a baited first question, I suppose. Yes, this, this, the answer actually has nothing to do with geography and everything to do with time. Because if you were to look at it from a geographical perspective, it's in southern Saskatchewan. The northern, or sort of the halfway point of the mm -hmm. province is about 100 miles north, uh, in the middle of Montreal Lake, by the way. Uh, that, that's the, the midway point of the province, if you were to measure it geographically. And Prince Albert Falls south of that. However, Prince Albert has always is considered, well, is still the most northerly city mm -hmm. in the province, and it is, its tagline is the gateway to the north, and for good reason, because it is the point at which you switch from the prairie uh, to, to the north. It is the gateway, it is the main road in and out of the north, and it is, it is, um, it is a space where you automatically think back in time. And, and as you cross the North Saskatchewan River at Prince Albert, uh, you, you enter sort of a, 
a time continuum where you think about all the other other histories of Saskatchewan that you don't hear about mm-hmm. uh, when you only read prairie history. You see all the trees, you see all the lakes, you see you, you're heading north, you're heading into uh, Boreal Forest, you're heading into the rock. And that's a long ways north, but you yeah. will eventually get there. Mm-hmm. And and yeah, but it's about time as well. So it, depending on when you start thinking about Prince Albert and the Prince Albert region, yeah, it was very much north and and considered to be a very northerly space. And I should say, this is a question you actually asked some of the participants that you interviewed for this book. Is this I did. the north or the south? I did. And it was fascinating because across the board, they said... Yeah, technically it's south, but it's north. It's north <laughs> in how they think. It's north in that it's the default position. In Saskatchewan, mm-hmm. if you're not prairie, well, you must be north because there's no other option. Because the prairie is the center. Yeah, prairie yeah. prairie is it unless you're north. So let's begin then by talking about place. This is a book that's about place. The title of it has the term place history. So could you just... Begin by explaining to listeners what place history is and why you chose this place uh, for studying Saskatchewan history. Place history is a technique that I use, and it has been successfully put forward by other historians Mm -hmm. before. Dan Flores would be a great example. He tends to call it deep history, Mm -hmm. uh, but basically it's taking a look at a very small um, geographical spot, defined however you define it. Usually the edges are quite loose. Mm-hmm. And and looking at it through many, many layers of history and looking at all the different players and activities that have that have gone on within that particular place. Mm-hmm. And so and so that's place history is the is the layering of activities, events and and uh, not just what people have done but but what the landscape has also look like and either how it has been changed by humans and how it has changed what humans do there and looking at that dance and the interaction. So that to me is, is place history. It's, it's an offshoot of local history, mm-hmm. uh, which, which is where I come at it from. I, I, in most cases, most people would consider me to be a local historian, but because I'm, I'm so actively aware of what's going on with the environment and, and that dance between humans and the environment and, and take a much more long-term and in-depth viewpoint and pull my sources from a lot further than what a typical local historian does. That's the difference between place history and local history. Yeah, and you describe it really well at the outset of the book. I mean, it's almost like imagining you're standing in one spot and then you're in the deep past and then time is moving quickly and you can see all the communities, human and non-human, that have been in one particular place over time. That's right. And when you layer it up like that, you can really take a look at, at sort of those larger pictures and, and, and compare across, uh, across many generations. You might be looking at what was going on in this place in the 1500s through archaeological and anthropological uh, notations and records and, and, and viewing that through the lens of, of history that comes from local First Nations people. And then maybe comparing that to a later settlement, whether that's soldier settlement or Depression-era settlement, and, mm-hmm. and, and comparing and contrasting across really broad points in time, but still looking at the same place. And so why did you choose the Prince Albert region for, as the place to understand Saskatchewan history? There's, there's two reasons for that, Sean, and, and number one uh, is the personal. I grew up there. I mm. was born and raised on the farm uh, in this region, and, and, and that 
draws directly to the second point, which is when, as I started moving through my my education from uh, elementary school through secondary school, high school, and into into university, all of the stories that I read about Western Canada and what Western Canada looked like were these prairie stories, and and I had they do not resonate with me. That is not my history. That is not my past. That is not the stories that I heard around the kitchen table growing up about the place where I am from. And I am Saskatchewan born, but I am not from the prairies. Mm -hmm. And so this was my way of of responding to that and showing how you can tell this story, the Saskatchewan story in a much different way. So this place is, and I guess it gets at, you got at this with the first question, but it's sort of neither southern nor northern in Saskatchewan. It's kind of in between. It's on the edge, and you describe it as an ecotone. Could you tell us what that is and how you use that to study the past? I, I sure can. This this has been, I grew up in what my dad would call the, the fringe, the forest fringe. This mm. is very much an edge environment, and, and it is... Uh, an ecotone is very simply where two ecosystems meet. So the ecosystem that is the prairies, which mm-hmm. is the Great Plains, uh, and, and the boreal forest, which stretches across Canada like a green scarf, I think is how the um, Natural Resources Canada describes it, a green scarf across the shoulders oh, of North America. Nice. <laughs> yeah, it's a fantastic quote. And uh, uh, the, so the ecotone is where these two ecosystems meet and where they mix, where they intermingle. And, and, and it's a space that uh, an edge environment, I think, is one of the richest places where someone can study history. If you're, if you're a maritimer, for example, you're, you're studying that space between the sea and the shore and mm. that constant interplay between the sea and the shore and how that's two very different cultures. You've got, you know, a, a sea-looking culture versus a, versus a land-based culture, and they're very different. And mm. it's the same in the prairie. So you've got a prairie-based culture, uh, agriculture, or if you want to go back even further than that, of course, you've got a bison-based uh, mm. uh, culture, which is highly pastoral, highly managed, and, mm. and, and the boreal forest culture, which was very, very different. And, but the ecotone is the point of connection and exchange. So it's both, a, it's both an ecological space but it's a cultural space as well, where you can see two very different groups meeting and interacting and sharing and exchanging and trading. Hmm. So let's let's go then sort of to the deep past in this place history and think about <clears throat> First Nations of this part of the Northwest. How did they use this edge environment, this space between forest and prairie uh, that would become Saskatchewan? Ecological edges are traditionally very rich. These These are the spaces where... If you live on an ecological edge, you have the advantage of being able to, of being able to access both ecosystems, mm. uh, and that's a tremendous advantage. And, and uh, archaeologists will tell you that the most rich uh, environments in which in which they find records of past life are almost always found on ecotones. Mm. And whether that's between plains and forest, plains and mountains, wherever that may be, uh, ecotones are are places of high uh, high richness and and it's also a place where if for example let's imagine that there's a massive drought on the plains which has happened many many times over the past 10,000 years mm-hmm. massive ecological drought where do the people go they spin out towards the edges they spin out away from those centers and towards the edges so these edge places become uh, places of refuge places of refuge in times of, of uh, stress 
And that's a theme that I found continued on. This wasn't just a First Nations theme. This is a theme that continued on through uh, uh, more, even 20th century uses of this particular place. So that was quite fascinating. I really enjoyed that. But Mm -hmm. First Nations used the edge environment. They would also actively recreate that edge environment. This was a place that... that, uh, um, they would uh, uh, fire. Of course, it was mm-hmm. a it was a tool that was well used, but on both sides, both prairie and forest. And they would they could use it to to manage that edge and to change and move that edge, which they did. It was also uh, a cultural space where, for example, if someone was a hunter, anyone could hunt a bison. There were mil- thousands, millions of them. You could get together, you could hunt bison. Hunting bison was something that was considered an easy job. You were known as a good hunter if you knew how to track a moose. Mm-hmm. It's an entirely different way, an entirely different skill set, and that's a cultural assumption and understanding. You know, both large four-legged animals provides lots of meat. You know, you need them, but it's it's a it's a very very different cultural understanding of of your of your needs and requirements. So I thought some stories like that to be quite fascinating to show that that diversity and what it meant to be able to cross over that edge. Right, and you you highlight evidence of uh, First Nations retreating to the forest edge in times when the bison hunt is poor uh, and being able to draw from the ecological advantages of the forested area of the region and then returning to the prairie when the conditions are more beneficial. Absolutely, and that would happen both on a seasonal basis as well as sort of on a on a uh, on an as needed basis, depending on droughts or floods, that sort of thing. But on a seasonal basis, mm-hmm. uh, there's there's an, an awful lot of literature and archaeology and anthropology that talk about uh, accessing the bison, particularly in the winter, that the bison would retreat. Uh, into the edges of the forest, and so of course the bands would also go to the edges edges of the forest to find the bison. And uh, this was this was known this region where that I'm studying was known as the good wintering place because mm-hmm. of course the other major ecological factor in Western Canada uh, is is it gets cold. You know, it gets, <laughs> you don't say. It's very cold. There's a lot of snow. It's it, you know blizzards will kill you. They still will, and and you need to be able to keep yourself warm in winter. And buffalo dung does not actually uh, heat, uh, it can cook food in the summertime, that's fine, but it actually c- cannot produce enough BTUs to heat a teepee. You need wood. Mm. So you need to be able to access either a river bottom where there's wood, or much more often, uh, bands would, would retreat up into the forest edge and and spend the depth of the winter, sort of between late December and, and into March, uh, up in the forest edge to uh, uh, so that they could access wood. And I think this is a critical finding in your book. The um, I guess you could characterize it as ecological plurality. Absolutely. But, but when the Canadian government then displaced local First Nations and Europeans and Euro-American and Euro-Canadian settlers began to arrive in the Northwest, what did they make of the forest edge environment? How did they approach this environment um, compared to previous human communities that lived there? Well, of course, the the biggest difference is that Euro Canadians um, need to put their stamp and set their pl- set their uh, create a life in at one particular point, whether that's mm. a farm or a trading post 
or 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 a city or whatever it is. And so they'll they'll build a spot and then sort of defend that spot, whether it's a trading post and then they're you know defending it against floods, you know building berms or whatever. Mm-hmm. And 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 so that that's one critical difference between the way First Nations had adapted to this environment, which was very malleable and movable. They would they would adapt to a region instead of one particular point, and and that's quite critical. Uh, to think about, and that, so the use of the forest edge, of course, when it was not the forest edge, you it was not actually opened to farming because the critical deficiency, as we just said, mm-hmm. on the prairies was wood, and so any place that had wood was considered to be uh, very, very valuable, and so no one was allowed. At, in the very beginning, 1860s, 1870s, 1880s, to to actually homestead in in the woods. However, there were lots of uh, people who came along and decided that that wood, right next to a place that doesn't have wood, which is filling full of people who want to build houses and churches and halls and groceries, you know, uh, general stores, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and railways, mm-hmm. that that they wanted that wood, and so the, that's where it became a lumber basket. And that's how it was seen and that's how it was interpreted. The other point that I I just wanted to reiterate is that displacement was quite different, depending if you're talking about Prairie First Nations or Boreal Mm -hmm. Forest First Nations. This was, well, for all of them, it was an incremental process. That's that's a a point. Just because the reserves were created doesn't mean that everybody was immediately on them. So there was an incremental period there. And in the Boreal Forest, that... So across that forest edge, it wasn't as uh, immediate. And so the use and the ability to continue to go to different points across the boreal forest to access your blueberry patch or your hunting or your trapping or your fishing or whatever else it was that you had set up through thousands of years of use in, in that particular place, you were still, First Nations people were still using those until well into the 20th century when we started imposing things more like hunting restrictions, fishing restrictions, creating the national park, those sorts of things. And this is, I think, an important finding in your book to some extent. I mean, would you say that colonization played out differently um, in this ecological context on the edge rather than the way it played out in the prairies? Yes, I would. Yeah. So how much did settlers in uh, this region of Saskatchewan borrow from First Nations in terms of strategies for um, self-provisioning and survival? It's it's difficult to say in some cases. I, I can't say that I have any particular data that would that would back me up if I would say that they did or did not uh, borrow from First Nations per se, because there's two reasons for two reasons for that. Number one, uh, their lifestyles at the boreal forest edge, which tend to fall on um, a very seasonal lifestyle, mm-hmm. lots of foraging, continuing to use the forest for hunting, fishing, berry picking, uh, woods, all of these same sorts of things that, that First Nations uh, also use these resources for. Whether they adapted to them or used First Nations techniques, that's sort of a different question. But that they use the forest in the same way is absolutely true, or mm-hmm. a very similar way is absolutely true. How they looked at it, however, mm-hmm. um, was was quite different. In particularly, if you're looking at it just from the government's perspective, from the government's perspective, it was only the very poorest people who were poor farmers 
that that uh, would continue to use the boreal forest for the hunting, the fishing, the the, the trapping, the uh, berry picking, those sorts of things. And so it became almost a denigrated activity. Mm. However, it, depending on the time, if people were starving elsewhere, then the boreal forest looked like a really good place to go. It was a, it was a poor man's paradise, a, a place where you could get by on very little. So then it became a selling feature. So the story of agricultural history in Saskatchewan that you provide in this book, I think, is very different than the kind of history of Saskatchewan that we get in Canadian history more generally. Can you explain for listeners how agriculture and the agricultural history of the Prince Albert region was different from the rest of Saskatchewan? Absolutely. And uh, the central figure there is a guy by the name of King Wheat. (laughs) (laughs) So the the prairie history story tends to center and continue to to tell and retell the story of King Wheat and and how Mm -hmm. the prairies are the breadbasket and the wheat basket of the world. And, and to view agriculture through that lens. And so then the measure of what a good farm looked like came to be seen as a wheat farm that could um, produce enough income from the farm to feed the family with no one taking or requiring any off-farm income. This became the, the, the story. And it has been perpetuated. And, that, and it was perpetuated to such an extent it was actually embedded in in all in government um, um, in assumptions around mm. what a good farm looks like. The problem is is that farming along the boreal forest ridge and really throughout any of those of those regions sort of along that boreal forest edge and what we would now today call the parkland region mm-hmm. is is it's a very different kind of agriculture. It is mixed farming as opposed to straight grain farming. So this was a place where um, you not only did you have your wheat fields, but you had every other kind of grain because you were devoting a lot of your um, land to the production of food for your animals because you had animals. You had milk cows, you had beef cows, you had possibly sheep, chickens, uh, pigs, etc., 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 and you ran your farm 365 days a year. Mm-hmm. This, was, this was a different kind of farming than a wheat farmer who maybe was only working four, five, six months a year at the most. You, mm-hmm. know, you go out in the spring, plant your field, go out in the fall, reap it, and that's about it. it, it um, it's a different kind of farming. And it, that knowledge, that deeply held understanding that it was a different kind of farming uh, was so important that it actually influenced soldier settlement later on this is post first world war soldier settlement they were setting up um offices all across canada and places where there were high numbers of soldiers coming back from the great war and wanting to farm and they actually they petitioned and they were successful to have a third office put in place in prince albert simply because and their argument was the kind of farming that they did in prince albert was so different that they needed a local person who understood local conditions and would provide different loans for different needs because the farming was so different than what could be found around Saskatoon or Regina. And these are some really important points, right? I mean, the kind of agriculture in this part of Saskatchewan wasn't necessarily directed towards export markets for the products that were produced. 
not to the same not to the same extent as the wheat market was. I mean, right. obviously the wheat market is an export market, but uh, the mixed farming market was very much uh, a local and an internal market. You know, to to make your own, to milk your cows, to make mm-hmm. your own butter, sell your butter at the store, sell your cream at the creamery, so that you could make. Uh, uh, ice cream or that you could make cheese locally and and all throughout sort of the, the twist into the 20th century and then for the first 30 or so years of the 20th century there were there was almost a huge debate between the two different kinds of agriculture and which mm. kind should people be doing versus the kind that was easier to do and, and it was think... almost uh, evangelical yeah, I mean, you can see, too, in that how this history could have been overlooked or lost, right? That when you're looking at records and you're thinking about agricultural history, I think historians, and you point this out, are really drawn to the prairies, perhaps in part because they're looking at export value of agricultural product, whereas local economic activity doesn't necessarily get captured well in the historical record, uh, at least in the kinds of methods that historians were previously using to study agricultural history. It's very, very different, absolutely, it's, especially if you're going to reduce it to that sort of data mining, yeah. because then you're only looking for, for the numbers, and then and then you are technically drawn to the export markets, because it's much more difficult to measure yeah. uh, those sorts of local markets, but it's one of the advantages of doing a local history and showing what that mo- local market looked like, and who were who was buying those products, and in what, in what amounts, and what seasons, and yeah. from whom, those sorts of things. The other point, too, about that is, is that... Uh, in these forest fringe environments, mixed farming became more than just the typical mixed farm, which was both grain and 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 animals. Mm-hmm. But these farms were also mixed in terms of their seasonality, and and they would they would do the trapping, they would do a little bit of you know cutting wood or 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 going up to work for a couple of months for a local sawmill. Mm-hmm. They would do freighting. They would do other sort of other sorts of things to add to the income of the farm and to stretch whatever farm income you had as far as you could. And so it's, it's even slightly different than your classic look mm-hmm. of what a mixed farm looks like. And I think this is where your analysis in the book is really uh, important, that that kind of occupational pluralism that you explore in the book, that there would be some farming activity, some hunting activity, some lumbering, some freighting. In the past, perhaps historians and other Saskatchewans, contemporary Saskatchewans, would have seen this as a sign of impoverishment. But in fact, you discovered that this was a good life. Yeah, it's it's not an economically, um, let's say, you're not really going to, get rich doing it. Right. And but at the same time measuring that against circumstances elsewhere for example during the 1920s and 1930s when we had a massive drought going on mm-hmm. in in southern Saskatchewan and southern Alberta this kind of a lifestyle uh looked really really good. So I guess that leads me to the next question about soldier settlement. Um and I wondered if you could explain what soldier settlement was and how it related to this edge environment in Saskatchewan. Was this a place for a good life for soldiers? It's interesting. I I found the research on soldier settlement to be some some of the more fascinating work that 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 went into this book for me because it's quite a different quite a different take on soldier mm-hmm. settlement, which very simply was uh, during World War One when the soldiers were older overseas, they canvassed them to say what what do you want? What do you want the government to do for you when you come home when this war is over? And and 
overwhelmingly they said they want they want land they want free land so the mm-hmm. soldier settlement program very simply was that they could uh, apply for either loans or or a second a soldier grant homestead and uh, and, and go farming and so they they were supported in this farming endeavor and it was very very different from the homesteading uh, because in homesteading, they were brought to Canada or they came to Canada mm-hmm. in droves, and they paid their ten dollars and they went out on their quarter section, and and the government basically cut ties, and it you know it was sink or swim, it's right. up to you. Soldier settlement was very different. This was very hands-on. So the land was inspected to as to whether or not this was good agricultural land, acceptable agricultural land. The soldier was inspected. They were interviewed as to whether or not they actually had any agricultural background. Uh, there were um, agents in place who would check on them on a regular basis. They would, uh, the Soldier Settlement Board would purchase supplies in aggregate to get a better discount than to pass on to the soldiers so that, you know, they would take a loan, but they could buy their stuff for a little bit cheaper so their loan money would go further. One of the reasons why they were drawn to forest edge environments, well, a couple of reasons. Number one, it was a lot cheaper. You could get a soldier settlement loan and buy land or go back to your own farm wherever you, wherever you came from because there were lots of farmers that that went to war in World War One, and and they could get a loan and and usually a second piece of land through the Soldier Settlement Board through uh, this land grant, and then you know double the size of their farm or a little bit bigger and get a loan and, and kind of it just gave them a bit of a leg up. But if they hadn't been farming before, they hadn't been farming for very long, they were drawn to the forest edge environment because then they could get both a homestead hmm. and a soldier settlement grant. So they had twice as much land right from the get-go <laughs> for a lot less money because that land was free. And then they could get the loan over and above that to, to do improvements on that. So they weren't using the loan to pay back for the land or to pay for the land. They were using the loan for improvements. So things like digging a well or purchasing, building a barn, purchasing animals, uh, purchasing, purchasing equipment, that sort of thing. So they could, they could get that much further ahead that much quicker. It's an interesting contrast. I mean, I haven't seen a book that situates soldier settlement in relationship to pioneering era homesteading. And it's fascinating to see and you trace those changes in policy, the sort of sink or swim to the support settlement system. It was quite different and, and, and it really led the way to, to what happened during the 1930s and the relocation uh, that, that happened in the 1930s. And, and, and that was all across Canada. There were people were, were being relocated out of cities and mm-hmm. supported to start farming and, and so on and so forth. And, and a lot of, so it was, but really soldier settlement was the beginning of that sort of more hands-on agricultural policy to actually invest in, in the people who wanted to go farming and to, and to give them those supports. Mm-hmm. Now, you describe the Prince Albert region as Saskatchewan's accessible wilderness as well. What does this mean? How did the area become a site of tourism and recreation, and what effect did it have on the region? It's, it's fascinating. So the, the region that I study is today known as the Lakeland region in Saskatchewan. This is, this is high end. This is, uh, Saskatchewan is equivalent to the Muskoka region of Ontario. There's okay. cabins. Uh, everywhere there's there's four or five different lakes that that within this particular region that have uh, cabins on them. Some of them enormous, some of them multi-million dollar cabins, and and uh, this 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 is a, a recreational space, particularly of course relating to the lakes, not so much the uh, the uh, land itself, but the lakes. Mm-hmm. And but it's close by. You know, you're you're within 
it's about a half an hour, 40 minutes to drive from Prince Albert, you know, right to your doorstep at, at Emma Lake, which is the most expensive of the four. And you're, it's about an hour to drive from Prince Albert up to Waska Sioux, which, of course, is the center of Prince Albert National Park, or the, the, the center community at Prince Albert National Park, also expensive. And it's um, these, these tourism sites grew during the 19 during the early part of the of the 20th century the the 1910 1920s 1930s mm-hmm. and 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 really took off during this time period and to me it 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 was very much about accessibility it was it wasn't so much about being the most beautiful although they they are quite beautiful they're they're lakes and Saskatchewan doesn't have that many of them so that mm-hmm. you know the oddity of it is certainly part of it but it's these are some of the closest lakes where you are outside the prairies, within the boreal forest, but not very far. Right. You don't have to fly in. You don't have to drive four or six you know, hours to get there. It, they're not that far. It's only about two hours from Saskatoon to, to your cottage at Emma Lake. So it's, this is very much an accessible wilderness, and that was exactly the argument that they used, that the Prince Albert uh, Chamber of Commerce and other local people used when the federal, when they tried to convince Mackenzie King to create Prince Albert National Park to take this old logging area, which is what it was, mm-hmm. uh, which was the Sturgeon uh, Sturgeon River logging area, and turned it into a national park, and they said, "Well, but it's not pretty. You know, you really need to go up to Larange before you get to Pretty, because that's where you hit the board, the the Canadian Shield, right. and it is very beautiful up at Larange. I agree. However, in the 1920s, you couldn't get to Larange." <laughs> without, you know, putting your car, it was miles of mud to get to Christopher Lake, and that was only half an hour, you know, or what we consider to be half an hour, only, you know, yeah. 30, 40 kilometers. It, it, there was no way that you could get to Larange in the 1920s. The, the, the distances were insurmountable, and they were certainly not accessible for anyone unless you were, had the means to fly in or take 10 days to canoe in from, mm-hmm. you know, Cumberland House. It was just not accessible. So... That, that key point became accessibility. This was the contrast, but this was also close. And, to, I mean, do you agree that to some extent the National Park uh, in Prince Albert was was a park for Saskatchewan residents first, uh, more oh, so than a park for other Canadians or international tourists? Oh, very much so, absolutely. This was, this, this was the original staycation. <laughs> Prince Albert National Park really was the original staycation. It's the mm-hmm. f- it was the first park that was created that's not in a mountain or not at the mountains. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the first national park in Canada that that was created. They they'd sort of turned to this idea of making sure that there was at least one national park per province. Right was kind of the driving idea. So the sister park to this is Riding Mountain National Park in Manitoba, and they were built at a, where they were sort of. Um, legislated into being at about the same time. But Prince Albert National Park was always meant, first and foremost, for the people of Saskatchewan. This was the playground for the prairies. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is a real rethinking of national park history here. As you suggest, this wasn't a park that highlighted an urban-rural contrast in the province. It was a, a park for rural residents of the province. Which is quite fascinating. There are certainly lots of urban people that went as well. Mm-hmm. But but accessible, certainly in the 1920s when the park was first bandied about, it was still very difficult to get there. However, in in, in the local papers and, and certainly in the histories that I looked at from, from the areas where I grew up, 
people were going to these parks every Sunday or they, you know, take their tents and pack up and go for three, four days or maybe a week in the summer. And it was interesting. I had uh, sort of a a conversation with Viv Nellis about this. And and he Mm. he said, I'm not sure that I really believe this. You know, farmers are farmers are busy in July. And I kind of looked at him going, I am a farmer. I know where I am in July and I'm at the lake and my grandfather was at the lake and he was a farmer. So hmm. <laughs> whose who's idea of, of where people are, mm-hmm. you know, becomes, and, and that actually feeds back into the different kinds of agriculture. If you're looking at it through the lens of Ontario, perhaps in Ontario, farmers in Ontario are busy in July doing something different than farmers at the forest fringe in Saskatchewan are doing right. at that same time period. I ran into this with another agricultural historian who studies United States history. His, his, his way of thinking about wheat was about fall wheat as opposed to hard red spring wheat. Mm-hmm. And so it just depends on where you are as to, as to what kind of agriculture it is and what that seasonality looks like. Right. And then for prairie residents in Saskatchewan, um, you know, it was a break from the monotony of the landscape of the prairies, as you suggest, whereas most of the park histories for the national parks emphasize the desire to get out into wilderness and escape urban environments. But you provided some evidence of, of visitors to national parks who are actually trying to escape other kinds of rural environments. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and particularly that contrast, the contrast between the prairies without trees and the boreal forest that has so many mm-hmm. trees and that, that sort of, you know, green oxygen filled contrast. Uh, it was, it, it's quite stark and, and fun to, to trace through the literature. Now this book culminates, I think, uh, in the 1930s and it's structured really well in this way. Um, few historians have actually written about the northward migration of environmental refugees from the prairies in Saskatchewan during the Dust Bowl of the 1930s. What does your history, what does your place history reveal about the broader history of edge environments in Saskatchewan and the relationship to the Dust Bowl? The, the Dust Bowl story for me is really where it all began. My grandparents left Weyburn in a massive dust storm in 1934. Mm-hmm. Grandpa loaded all his stuff on a, on a boxcar and, and moved north and moved north to the Padiquid region. And that's why I ended up growing up in the Padiquid region instead of in Weyburn, mm-hmm. uh, because my grandparents fled the prairies during the 1930s Dust Bowl. And, and the story resonated down through the years through my family. And so this, this was the starting point of why I'm from Saskatchewan, but I'm not from the prairies. But that northward migration of environmental refugees, it, it has some play, particularly in geographers. Uh, Robert McClemon has done some work on it, and there's a few others that have written about it. But it's, it reveals how when you, when you develop a, a society based specifically on a particular bioregion, and let's look at the Great Plains as an example, mm-hmm. that when you develop a, a culture and a society and a, and a particular style of agriculture, how resilient is that style of agriculture to those massive fluctuations and changes that can happen in an environment? And, and that's exactly what happened. And it's a very similar story to what happened to First Nations for thousands of years. When a massive mm-hmm. drought came along, they also would retreat to the forest edge. And this is the same story played out across the 1930s and how the environment actually was a massive impetus for these people to do this south to north migration and and it was and it was legendary for its time period mm-hmm. people the the roads heading north were packed and and there were they were like war refugees in Europe 
They literally stripped what they could off their farm. They would roll up the linoleum, they would take the doors, they would take the handles, they would take the windows, and they would pack it in their wagons, and they'd, the cow would walk along behind, and the dog and the cat would be yowling in a box, and, and away they would go. And I guess, I mean, your, your book obviously is a history, but it underlines the significance of looking to the past to understand this phenomenon, because, of course, the northern trek in Saskatchewan didn't materialize out of the blue. You show numerous northern, northern treks in the 20th century before the Great Depression. Yeah, absolutely. And I, in, in, it's funny, this book to me, I'm responding to so many different, to so many different storylines and so mm. many different uh, ways and, and of, of, of looking at the past. And, and uh, that's one of the things I'm quite proud of about this book in that it's, it, it may be a history of a small place, but it's responding to so many different conversations mm-hmm. that have gone on in Canadian history. But this uh, environmental migration, I think, is 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 the culmination of the book and I've left it as such for a mm-hmm. reason because it, it it becomes the center point of 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 that larger story of what the edge zone is and what an edge environment can provide. And this is very much that place of refuge, that place of, of resilience over time. So I think the broader arguments of this book to kind of expand um, some of the significance, and you get into this toward the end of the book, but the broader arguments of your book, I think, fit really well with an article that Cole Harris published in the Canadian Historical Review in 2010 called The Spaces of Early Canada. And in it, he argues that settlement in Canada was shaped both by an expanding agricultural frontier and in, in environments that he characterizes as Turnerian, um, and then, but also uh, wilderness environments that he characterizes as Inician. These two solitudes of Saskatchewan that you identify, the prairie and the forest, do they fit in this framework? I would say that the way historians have traditionally separated the history of the two, separated the history of the prairies and the forest, Mm -hmm. then to to that very large degree up to this point, they they would have. Mm -hmm. They would have fit quite well into into that. Uh, But I disagree. And because I look at it from that long-term history, I know that if you look at it, if you look at Western Canada as a whole, from the fur traders' perspective, mm-hmm. the wilderness was the prairies. There were there were no furs to be bought. The only reason why they built forts there was so that they could collect the pemmican. <laughs> there, <laughs> there, there, was, there, there really was no other reason to be there. So that that because there were there weren't there the richness was all in the north. The 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 prairies were the were the um, wilderness, and and the north was was very much the that that frontier of the the fur frontier. That of course flipped once you introduced. Uh, large-scale agriculture to the picture. And then when the culture shifted away from the fur trade and more towards it into into agriculture and actually using the land for a different purpose, mm-hmm. then that classic agricultural frontier does tell the prairie story and the northern wilderness tells tells sort of, sort of the forest story. But even that becomes a bit problematic, depends a little bit on what you're doing within mm-hmm. those spaces and in the edge environment, well, are you farming it? Are you cutting it down for lumber? Are you leaving the trees up so that you can go and sit amongst them next to a lake and it is a parkland recre- recreational space? It depends on what you want to do within that ecotone. So do you think that this ecotone approach to 
Canadian history can be applied to other environments across the country? Oh, absolutely, I do. And certainly, uh, really, I suppose I have two approaches. I think that the place history approach, Mm -hmm. I think it would be fascinating to tell the history of Canada, let's say, from Churchill, Churchill, Manitoba, Mm. and write Canadian history from that perspective. What do you see? How do things look different? What what factors are at play, what factors affect that particular place, and how does that scale back out? That's what I did with the North Prince Albert region. I took a very small place and, and, and took a look at these massive cross-Canadian, both Saskatchewan and cross-Canadian stories, and took a look at how they played out in the local setting, and did that, can that scale back up? Does that then change the larger picture? So place history is certainly a technique that I would highly recommend to, to other Canadian historians. But I would also recommend thinking about Canadian history, really interrogating why, why there are these either ecological or artificial dividing lines, mm. whether those are north and south, whether those are east and west, whether those are ecological zones, for example, the difference between agriculture in, in say, Ontario versus, versus the history of northern Ontario, how that looks different, where that, where that transition point is, mm. and thinking about history from those places, because it will change the story. One of the other reasons is that in Western Canada, for example, if you split, which is how historians have traditionally done it, you split the prairie story from the northern story, mm-hmm. as if the two have no connected history, no times where there was any exchange or interaction, you're telling two completely different pasts. Mm-hmm. And that's wrong, because you're missing all of that rich space in between. And that is what I think we're missing in the Canadian story. Well, this is a book, I think, that will give readers a new take on Saskatchewan history and I'm certain as well a broader rethinking of Canadian history and environmental history of Canada. It's called Forest Prairie Edge, Place History in Saskatchewan by Merle Massey. Thanks for uh, letting us know more about your book, Merle. Well, thanks. I appreciate the call, Sean, and I'm glad that I'm... Uh, kudos to anyone who listens to the last 40 minutes. <laughs> Nature's Past is produced with support from the Network in Canadian History and Environment. This episode was made by Merle Massey and me, Sean Courage. Music for Nature's Past was licensed by Creative Commons. For details on the artists, please take a look at our show notes page at niche-canada.org slash naturespast, where you can also download new episodes, subscribe to the podcast through iTunes and other podcast players, and leave comments. Please let us know what you think about the podcast by leaving comments or writing a short review on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash nature's past. You can always find out more about environmental history research in Canada from the Niche website at niche-canada.org. And you can find out more about the topics we discussed on this episode on our show notes page. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back in the fall with another episode of Nature's Past.